Welcome to the Access VFX podcast, pursuing inclusion, diversity, awareness and opportunity in VFX, animation and games industries. Hi, I'm Simon Devereaux, founder and director of Access VFX, bringing the visual effects animation and games industry together, working towards a shared goal to make our industry more diverse and inclusive by taking action rather than just talking about it. Hello, I'm Simon, founder and director of Access VFX, and welcome to season two, episode 18 of the Access VFX podcast. For our 18th episode, I met with film, TV, and video game director and producer Haz Dalul, fresh from FMX, where he was program chair. I was so excited to meet with Haz and was particularly interested in how he transitioned from a traditional VFX artist career path to directing and producing movies. This is a bloody brilliant episode. Haz is a force of nature and natural storyteller, so we get a unique insight into his journey so far, from growing up in East London to breaking into Hollywood. And of course, we discuss Rift, his dual video game and companion feature made entirely using Unreal Engine 5. We recorded this last week and it's an absolute banger. Anyway, enough from me. Get comfy and get your ear goggles around episode 18 of the Access VFX podcast. Hello and welcome to the Access VFX podcast, season two, episode 18. It's me, Simon, and have we got a stone cold treat for you today. A man who's been in the game for 22 plus years with no less than 94 LinkedIn entries and 50 IMDb credits. I went through them all myself, I promise, who, in addition to his own directorial projects, has worked for a huge list of big names such as Paramount Pictures, 20th Century Fox, Walt Disney, as well as VFX staples, including Lex Hag, The Mill, Escape Studios, Adobe, Envy, Jellyfish Pictures, Glassworks, Rebellion, the list literally goes on. I'm going to let you look it up at your leisure, dear listeners. Um, With a career that kicked off as a games artist, then what followed was a career journey of many numerous hats as multimedia designer, creative director, Shake Compositor, Comp Soup, Nuke Compositor, VFX Producer, Head of Nuke, VFX Soup, VFX Consultant, Post-Production Soup, Panelist, Speaker, Writer, Director, Executive Producer, Lecturer, Professor, Cinematographer, Advisory Board Member, hailed by Epic Games as a pioneer in utilising the latest in Unreal Engine and virtual production on his animated feature films, the co-founder of Hazimation, and fresh from this year's FMX, where he was program chair. It's the man with literally the longest podcast intro I've ever done. It's the brilliant Hazdalil. How are you, sir? Wow. Thanks. Podcast, the podcast finished now. <laughs> thanks for coming. It's been great. Have you got any tips for anything? <laughs> well, thanks so much, Simon. Well, I mean, firstly, wow. I mean, that's probably like the longest. And I didn't realize I had all those jobs until I thought about it. I'm like, wow. When you said multimedia, I'm like, whoa, that's like 97, yeah, right. 98, right? Um, yeah. Memory um, lane. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm like super honored to be on on this podcast, dude. Like, I've been obviously following it for a while and huge fan of Access VFX and like what you guys are doing, you know, like supporting the next generation of students and current people in the industry. So super honored to be here. Well, the honor is all ours for sure. Um, has it's great to have you on and to the, your point around uh, LinkedIn. So our listeners will know that's exclusively where I do my research. And I, I went onto your LinkedIn profile. Then it said, show all 94 (laughs) entries. And I'm like, what? I've only got like 24 hours to turn this around. 
Uh, and it's amazing. I mean, it's just such a, a roll call of amazing companies, great projects, um, and real testament to your your uh, I was going to say character arc. Then definitely your career your career arc to date. Um, we can't obviously talk about uh, Has and the work you do without talking about the feature that you're working on and game, isn't it? Is there a game time yeah. as well with Rift? It's, it's yeah. This is actually my third feature film, and um, it's we started this like October 2020 when I you know started really getting into Unreal. Um, but it's also been simultaneously produced alongside of the video game as well, um, mainly because they're both mm-hmm. built in a game engine. But like how how yeah. Rift first came about was Rift was supposed to be like when you write a, you have like a bunch of scripts that writers create, right? And it's always one that no one's ever going to make. It's the one that you're like, I'm just going to mm-hmm. do whatever it, just write whatever it is. No one's ever going to make this, but I'm just going to get it out of my system. And I kind of wrote this treatment. Yeah. It's really called Brother because it's about two brothers that are trying to break out this hospital. Um, and we kind of just shelved it. My producer, Paula Crickard, was like, yeah, right. Maybe your sixth movie when we add a couple of more zeros on the on the budget. But for now, it's a great idea. Put it away. Um, and we were prepping to do my third film called Luna, which was going to be shooting Canary Islands on. But obviously, pandemic hit sort of like mid-2020, and we kind of put that on hold. But by that time, I was doing a lot of previs in Unreal Engine, in a way, for Luna. And I just fell in love with Unreal because, you know, you got to remember, I, I've done previs before. And it's usually grayscale characters sliding across the floor with cube boxes and stuff. It was very, very crude. And when I was doing previs in Unreal, I was like, wait, what am I getting here? I'm getting reflection, shadow, you know, all the stuff that usually takes a while to render. I'm getting this in real time on my mm. Mac. And even more, like when I was showing the previs to like studio executives in LA and, and heads of department, even actors that were trying to board on the project, part of the casting, they're like, is this for an animated film? I'm like, no, this is previs. Like, no, we've seen previs. That ain't previs. That's like a first yeah. pass animated film. And saying that, I kind of thought about it on the wow. way back. I'm thinking, well, maybe there's something there. But no one was making animated like content, like you know, like commercial content. Everyone's doing shorts mm. or using it for previews or for virtual productions, so on, or video games, obviously. So mm. when it came to like when the pandemic hit, I'm like, you know what? You know, we had done a couple of projects already. We did a short called Battlesuit, which is a proof of concept, and I was also asked to um, pitch on a some directors always get asked to pitch on projects right then you, know, you either get a script and you read the script to hey i love this i connected with it or you do a, a big massive pitch deck and cut a sizzle trailer all the usual things right i didn't want to do any of that so for mutant year zero when the company pathfinder in la sent me the video game and i put it in the playstation free swag by the way they send you stuff when they get you to pitch and stuff <laughs> uh, which is cool Top um, the, yeah the first logo i noticed was made in unreal engine and i'm like huh does that mean if i had all the assets from the game i could literally put something together so i got on a call called the game developers in i think they were in denmark called bearded ladies and they're not bearded ladies they're just called bearded ladies and <laughs> via the publisher funcom they managed to send me over sort of like 600 gigs worth of like assets and they were at first like we don't know what you're gonna do with it because this is game assets but <laughs> go have fun go for you and have fun yeah yeah but the thing is it wasn't just plug and play but what was really interesting was the fact that you know this is a video game that's been in development and in production and got a massive fan already fan base already based on the board games uh, mutant chronicles and there's like art direction that's like decades worth of art direction which i'm like wow you know i've got this for free in a way so all i gotta do is kind of like do what you do when you direct tv which is you're a guest director so me and the team like mm-hmm. a team of like four 
kind of put it together real quick, the sizzle trailer, and we kind of like showed it and they were just blown away. They're like, oh my God, like most most directors send pitch decks and say, it's going to be like the action of Terminator 2 meets the comedy of True Lies, you know, that kind of thing, right? Clearly I'm a James Cameron fan. And, um, but <laughs> with this, I was like, no, this is what it's going to be like. These are the characters. This is the tone and everything. And we kind of like made a first rough version of the movie animated so from there they're like you know pathfinder and funcom like look you know you're clearly the director for it your company's a production company for it and we went ahead and started doing that and you know we're still in like script writing stage but while we're in script writing stage i just had the hunger to make stuff i just i'm kind of one of those directors that just can't sit and wait and it's really bad because most most people in la just <laughs> wait and get you know go through the development phase they have like 20 development projects i just had to make stuff so we went ahead and made rift you know, we we had made a um, good amount of profit on the first movie, the, the my first feature to be on, which I'm going to talk about later on how we mm-hmm. how we put that together, which is gnarly. Um, but we're still making mm-hmm. like sales on that. So with the sales, we managed to put that into the movie and kept the team small and just everyone just hands on. Just just imagine a bunch of generalists making a movie. That's exactly how Riff is made. <laughs> Let loose. <laughs> How cool, though. So it started life as a, a film rather than a game, or did it start out? No, it was originally... So we, we went ahead and made the animated film. So we went ahead and made the animated film. Yeah. But it was like six months in, I wanted to do like a car chase sequence. And um, one of uh, one of our artists, Sam Rebello, who's actually an escape, escape student, actually, he's finishing his yeah. last year. He, uh, he came on to build some assets for us and environments. Yeah. But he failed to mention in his like you know interview thing that he actually does game levels in his spare time he mods stuff up so he quickly put together this thing for me he goes hey just plug in an xbox controller and just drive it around i'm like wait a second we can make a game here and there was a bunch of stuff in the script process that you know so with the writer stavros that we worked with we had a bunch of ideas that just never made it in the movie because it's 90 minutes and it's a multiverse movie as well so there's only so much you can put in so we're like well I love the idea of branch narrative, especially for something like multiverse, but also there's so many things as a storyteller, I wish I could tell, or at least get audiences to experience it in a new way that you can't really do in a linear format. So we found a really good way to utilize the game format. Because the thing is, if you're going to use video games, you've got to use the format, you know, the best you can. Otherwise it's not worth yeah. doing, right? It's like the idea of doing it in animation. Because the reason we're doing Rift in animation, as opposed to Luna or any other projects is there's, gravity physics bending action sequences that could not be shot right so the animation format is perfect for it um but one day we decided to do a game jam so for those you know listening game jams are basically like a couple of like couple of guys get together one weekend pizza and beer whatever and we just put together a game level right or code something together and we did that obviously we did it virtually because of pandemic right so we had zoom pizza meetings and um (laughs) within a weekend you know by the time we finished that like, monday morning we had something very rough i mean it was really clunky there's collision issues but we had an we had a playable game a game that we were actually enjoying and the idea is you got to go and rescue the kid it's capture the flag basic mechanics we're like yeah. we can make the game but here's the thing when do we make the game and we realized why don't we just make it as we're making the film so sam then kind of focused so mostly cool. on the game and the interesting thing is simon loads of stuff that appeared in the game were like why is this not in the movie because there's so much stuff you can do in the game with real-time effects that you wouldn't necessarily yeah. think of when you're doing an animated film do you think you still treat it as kind of visual <laughs> effects process when you're working in an animated film so like no that needs to go in the movie so it's kind of like the game inspired a lot of the stuff in the in the movie and they both happen at the same time yeah <laughs> So many like fortuitous moments there, isn't there, with uh, how it how it came to be, though. Totally. And I love that it's a 
reinventing how you tell a story yes. not just through that that 90 minute kind of uh, piece of storytelling and i love the idea of that deeper dive into 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 the narrative through through the game which sounds brilliant <laughs> and if the game's as violent as the trailer i'm all in it looks gloriously violent yeah with violence it's interesting because you know if we did this live action it'd be like oh my god this is like unwatchable this is like gore fest um <laughs> I, I but i think with animation there's a level of like it's I hate to use the word it's a cartoon, but you know you can get away with it a little bit. Um, you know I'm, I'm a, you yeah. can see the back and I've got the Kira poster. I'm a huge yeah, fan of anime. Awesome. You know anime is probably the biggest influence when it comes to animation for me, mainly because of the adult storyline and the complexity of subject matters that mm-hmm. can still you know attract teenagers and youngsters. You know when I watched Akira, I don't know I was like in college, right, and I'm like. This is not cartoons. This is not the Tom and Jerry I remember watching. This is not Disney. <laughs> yeah, like, what is this? This is crazy. And then I end up watching Ghost in the Shell and all a bunch of other, like, Wicked City and yeah, Cyber that... City Oedo. And these are all, like, hard science fiction, cyberpunk stories. The sort of thing that you read in a William Gibson book or, you know, or Philip K. Dick book, you're now getting that mm. in animation. And done in an animated style that you can relate to when watching the Disney films, like or the or the Lion King and so on. So it blew me away. And I always thought to myself, if I was ever going to the animation space, I would really borrow a lot of that love and and you know wow factor that I got when watching anime. You know, not just visually, but also tone and story and and being bold and brave of what you do with that story. And I think with with anime with anime you do that. And I think with Riff, what we did with Riff was like. We, it was kind of like the term balls to the wall. We literally just went full on with that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just threw everything at it. Sounds brilliant. Sounds brilliant. I'll, I'll, I'll bet we'll unpack it as we go Absolutely. through the vault. And there's quite a lot I want to talk about. Uh, particularly, I want to hear more about FMX and yeah. how you came to uh, to, to host the, the whole thing. And uh, what I'm really interested in, I'm sure our listeners are, is how you made that transition from what on paper looks like a traditional VFX <laughs> career path to director, producer, writer, entrepreneur, uh, panelist, all of that, you know. So I think uh, I reckon we will break it down. Yeah. Uh, as I know the the vault questions allude to a lot of this. So sure. if uh, you're prepared, has yeah. I'm going to open open the very creaky, dusty atmosphere effects vault, and we're going to we're going to step in with the the big twenty. So we're going to open the vault, and we're in. And question one: Where in the world are you, and where did you grow up, has? Okay, I'm in London, and I was actually born in London. Specifically, I was born in Islington, and even more specifically, Holloway Road. So for those of you who know Holloway Road, North London, that's where I'm from. But obviously, you know, we moved around, you know, we moved up to like, you know, East London. It's actually, I'm still living in East London now. I'm in Walthamstow, so I'm oh, on nice. E17 Massif, yes. And um, yeah, <laughs> the band as well. I'm not going to say. Uh, but, uh, but during the video games, uh, when I worked in video games, I worked a lot up north. So, you know, because there was a huge video mm. game wave back in the, you know, late 90s. So, you know, I worked yeah. like in Newcastle, Manchester and, and so on. And then went down to Leamington Spa where I worked with Codemasters. So I kind of did my tour of the whole of England, I feel, with my career. Mm. Uh, but also end up working abroad as well. I end up working in, in New York, um, Sweden. Um, spent a, nearly a whole year in, in Belgium as a VFX suit there. Um, I'm quite fortunate I got to travel because of my creative career, actually. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a career that will take you everywhere, isn't it? From, you know, whether it be in my line of work or, or the creative or production. For sure. Like watching people's career paths blow up in my, in the last, I would say, 
10 years of working in the industry for me and just seeing where people have gone and where they're working and it's literally global workforce and most of the folks started as runners and schedulers and and everybody's out there doing their thing so yeah i'm not surprised that you're you're so well traveled but i love that you you have that gravitational pull back to east london to london represent (laughs) love it so the big question i meant um is the three words that describe you has what are the big three well i'm i'm I always find it weird to say things about myself. So I'm just going to try and reference what I hear other people say about me, which I feel Ooh, like, nice. oh, yeah, that's kind of I true. Like I think ten- tenacity, you know, tenacious is a big thing that I keep hearing people talk about, especially, you know, when I talk to like my manager at agents in the US or even like a lot of my friends, mm-hmm. they're like, dude, like you're, you're, you're tenacious, your tenacity and like getting something made is incredibly like inspiring i'm like what do you mean and they're like because you just don't stop you're like a you're like a dog of a bone you just won't stop and even though you have all these (laughs) no no we're not going to make it no it's a big pass for us loads of passes i'm like i'm just gonna keep going at it until like i've given (laughs) up and i i tend not to so i think yeah not giving up um the other thing is also i think for me is um i i like to see myself as an open person and i get told that i'm very open and sometimes I'm too open, like, you know, like, especially when, when movies are made and like during the press time and, and the press is asking questions like, so, you know, what, what was the things that you've had problems with? And usually the PR person gives you a list of things that do not say this. And I tend to say yeah, that because I feel like people should know how movies are made. People should know the good and the bad. And, <laughs> and I feel like, you know, honesty is a big, I think, and that's the other word for me is honesty and transparency. Well, those are two words. I know, my bad. But um, I yeah, think I've got four words now. You're going. I know. Going, I'm going, going we're breaking every fast. rule here. Um, but <laughs> I think right, I think I think honesty and transparency are two of the things that I live by, like hundred percent. Like because I feel like hmm. that is how I was able to put my team together. It's how I'm able to still work with the current people, um, even from a business point of view. Now that I run a business, you know, I think honesty and transparency goes a long way. You know, I'd rather use the words I don't know when someone asks me a question, even during a pitch, like, hey, do you think you can pull this off? I'm like, I really don't know, but I'm going to give it a shot. And I feel like that goes a long way as opposed to, I've seen other people were like, yeah, we can do that. Of course we can. And I'm like, how are we going to figure this out? Um, which I think is kind of cool as well. But for me, um, I just honesty and transparency for sure. It is. I mean, everything you've said there just says authenticity to me. You could almost take transparency, honesty, openness as an equation on a on a kind of Stephen Hawking style <laughs> yes. blackboard or or what uh, oh, I forget, I forget an actor's name Be- beautiful mind when he's on the window oh yeah yeah um, yeah yeah Russell Crowe Russell Crow, uh, yeah. doing his thing but it's almost a an equation um because I think one thing I tire of is be- people saying they're experts people saying they're subject matter experts or they know everything or or leaders who claim to be the kind of the all all-knowing the all-seeing and it's bullshit. I think you should surround yourself with people that are, I've said this on the podcast before is surround yourself with people that are better than you yeah. as a leader. You know, the idea is you, you're pulling together that the Avengers or of your team, yeah. you know, where everybody's got their superpowers and their skills. And I love that about, about uh, saying, I don't know, you know, being honest, like, I don't know, but let's work together, problem solve and, and find a way to get it done. Do you think, um, uh, because obviously you've used the words that people have used for you, which I really like, and again, it shows a humbleness for sure. Um, Do you feel like when you are so tenacious and you're so like, you know, focused on the kind of the end game, is that you almost, because you're in a bit of a bubble, aren't you? You're so focused that you don't think about your your qualities or how you're coming across in many ways. You're just thinking about, I'm just 
you know, re- going for the prize, you know, do you, far, do you find that you're, yeah, you, you get a bit, yeah, it's like they call it flow, don't they? You're just in, yeah. in the zone. Yeah. And, and I think that is why, you know, my, when I, when I set the company up and you know, I set up with my business partner, Paula Crickard, and I thought for me, it was really important to have a business partner because I was so used, like, as a, you know, I started my career in filmmaking while being a visual effects supervisor. Oh no, go figure. Who has time working in visual effects to make short films in their evenings? Wait, what evenings? But yeah, I still <laughs> managed to carve out some time during my evenings and weekend to make short films. And I was always just like this one guy, you know, surrounding myself with as much people as I can, you know, beg, steal and borrow. But that's okay for the short film world, a guerrilla world, right? But, you know, when it came to like, you know, a professional level where you got a company and stuff and you're dealing with, you know, financiers and so on, you kind of need to have someone as a business partner. And it, was, it took a while for me to find the right business partner. And, um, and you know, Paula Crickard was interesting because she, we share the same values that we both love technology and story and so on, but we're quite different in terms of like she is kind of like the strategist you know i'm like let's go let's go make a a movie about the metaverse and it's gonna be freaking awesome we're gonna play around in vr (laughs) and she's like awesome but let's just break it down a few steps back here what does it involve take a breath yeah and and then you realize oh yeah actually you know we should just maybe work on that component so i think it's important to have that Mm -hmm. person also have someone that does something that is better than you you know she's incredible when it Mm. comes to putting projects together in terms of budgeting and scheduling yes i've done that as well as a vfx producer but she's she does it better than me way better than me i think it's important to have someone that's better than you at something uh, but at the same Mm. time share the same ethos and share the same you know the the common ground in terms of making content um and and i think you know that's and that's a big thing you know putting your team together as well and uh, like for example my head of cg my head of CG is a guy called Andrea Tetecci. And he's probably going to kill me for saying this if he listens to it. In fact, he listens to this, so I better be good. Um, but he <laughs> he started out working with, with me, collaborating with me um, back in 2013, 14. He was an escape student as a composite oh, student cool. from Italy, international student, right? And, you know, I was working on a short film sync and I needed some composites to help me out. And he jumped on and, you know, his English wasn't 100%, but... I can just tell this guy just loved cinema and he's really got into it. And when I end up making my first feature film, I hired him. I said, Hey, you should come on and help me out as a composite. And he helped me out. And he was freelancing at like other places. Flash forward now, like after working on a bunch of projects with me, he's my head of CG. He literally tells me what to do. Most of the time, please don't break that house. I'm going to build you a plugin to do that. Okay. Just don't break unreal (laughs) or any plugins, but it's amazing for me. I have so much joy in seeing like my early collaborators that worked with me when they were just like a rotor, it's a junior artist and kind of just level up and be on that journey with me. But as well as me becoming like, you know, directing, making my dreams come true. I'm seeing my team grow and see their dreams come true and see them just become something that's just like wow and I, I feel like oh my god like i'm so pleased to play a tiny tiny part in just seeing you mm, grow and yeah. it's it's amazing and for me that's the biggest joy just seeing like people that you collaborate with all these years on all your projects mm. to get to a point where they're like they're the rock stars now and i love that totally yeah it's taking pleasure in that isn't it it's a real it's a real testament to anyone working in this industry when you can genuinely take pleasure in seeing people's careers just blow up it's awesome um, and you like saying, not necessarily because of me or you or anyone else, but you played a part in that journey, a part of that story. And I think that's 
That's lovely. I like that. But there's there's a pic. I mean, speaking of FMX, um, which I think is going to be the next mm. thing. Um, you know, yep. there was a picture that's actually going around social media, and it's um, a picture that Hugo Guerra. So for those who listen, Hugo, Hugo Guerra is like a, a really well respected compositor, BFX yeah. supervisor. He runs this thing called Hugo's Desk, which is an amazing YouTube channel yes. where he breaks down showreels, and he you know, he's been an educator himself. Um, and there was and there's a, and in that picture is Victor Perez, who's like. Mr. Yes, Color Comp Legend. Now, here's the thing. I saw the picture. Yeah, right, right. It's, it's a cool picture. We're, picture. At, at, we're having breakfast. It's a great breakfast. picture, man. <laughs> yeah, we're having breakfast <laughs> at FMX like, no, in the hotel. And we, all three of us were like, hey, guys, I don't think we've ever actually all three of us sat down together on a table, considering we've all known each other for like a decade That's or something. As Because we all started off as compositors. You know, we were like the first wave of nuke compositors. Right? We all migrated from shake into comp. In using nuke and um and at the same time as we all ex- you know kind of the years went by we've all become directors in our own right like you know hugo's directing amazing game cinematics victor directed mm-hmm. these amazing shorts and now he's prepping for his feature and i've done features and it's just nice that all three of us were like we started off as compositors and now we're at fmx cool. together and that feeling and that's what that picture pretty much encapsulates that feeling like we grin on our faces and i love that i love that so moving into we're kind of touching on inspiration already what inspires you has what's the what's the go-to what gets you out of bed in the morning wow oh my god like i that's a huge question because a lot of things inspire me like for example the thing that gets me out of bed is the fact that the current projects i'm working on you know I'm very picky on the projects that we do. For me, I'm a strong believer, like, you know, do a project because you genuinely find a connection to it. So, you know, obviously we're in post on Rift. We're doing, you know, getting the demo of the game ready, but we're also on a bunch of other projects that are linked to the metaverse type projects, that kind of web-free cinematics. And those are very exciting. So that gets me out of bed massively. I'm like, oh my God, this is awesome. I'm working this cool thing. I can't believe I'm getting paid to do this. That's kind of that thing that gets me out of bed. Like, wait, I'm getting paid for this? This is insane. Um, but the other thing also is, um, the other thing that I find inspiring is just looking at other people's work. You know, whether it's like, you know, AAA directors like, you know, like James Cameron or Don't Shoot Me, but I love Michael Bay's movies. I'm a huge fan of the Michael nice. Bay, the Bayham. Um, there's just <laughs> Bayham. something about the, autori- the autism of the... Autism. If you're in the mood for a Michael Bay movie, there's nothing quite like it. Right, right on. Exactly. Um, but also, you know, the thing that inspires me is like, you know, sometimes I just go on YouTube, right? And I see like some of the shorts that, that people are creating, short films that people are creating in Unreal Engine. I'm like, holy moly, this is, this is like Blur Studios level. Like, and this is like a bunch of people and that inspires a lot you know sometimes i reach out to those people by art station hey man love your work we should at some point collaborate and some of these artists i've reached out actually are working on the current project we're on so that's mm-hmm. so inspiring but it's an inspiration level where i'm like i could do something about this you know i could just reach out to them you know god bless the internet cool. right you know the fact that you can just reach out to people and we'll dm them and you know there's a 50 50 chance they'll get back to you most of the time they actually do because you're all in the same you're all in the same circle. So I think that's a big thing. The other thing is when I'm in production, you know, when I'm like, you know, deep in production, especially during crunch time, and sometimes you get the feeling like, oh my God, like I'm running out of steam or like I need inspiration. This shot just isn't getting it. Um, music is a huge part of my life. Like, yeah, in fact, every single shot in every single movie that I've worked on as a director, there's usually um, a mixtape involved. Yeah, really? like so. So when I when I directed the um, the Disney show called Fast Lane, right? So I was in Vancouver directing that. Mm-hmm. I remember yes, saw that 
Oh, thank you. Um, and I remember um, creating sort of like a sort of like a Spotify playlist for the showrunner and for the executives at Disney. Okay, and I labeled them like you know, like this track is the opening sequence. This track is the 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 arc. This track is the insight incident. And they were like, what? you know, we listen to that. We can actually see the personality. You know, there was like Run DMC in there. There was um, there there was also like. Vangelis in there for like the quiet moments and for me music it's very inspirational because it kind of like sets the tone for a lot of things and you know this mm. is one of the reasons why I love the editorial process so much because with the edit you can really change the movie just like that just by switching a music yeah. track or you can switch the you can have a shot of someone just staring at the staring at the camera and there's so much you can do with just no dialogue just music yeah, and I completely agree and i love that so music's a very big inspiration but but most importantly other people inspire me you know that's the beautiful thing like it should be competitive but i don't find it competitive i just find it inspiring <laughs> yeah i think being around and i'm glad you mentioned people because i think you've uh, you've not uh, broken the chain of the podcast where everybody talks about being surrounded by incredible people i love your point around inspiration but not just inspiration for inspiration's sake <laughs> yes i love that it's taking that inspiration and then using this weird and wacky thing called the internet and then <laughs> connecting and then it leading to collaboration and 100%. you know working with people. I just think that's super cool. Don't get me started on music, Has, because we've only got an hour for this podcast <laughs> and uh, I'm a big, big music head. And I agree with you. Like, I think, you know, you can have no visuals. You can have all a static image, but you can have music yeah. and it can just change the whole direction totally. of, of a piece. Because I love music so much, I was listening to a band called Miro Shot. Um, so Mirror Shot is this like amazing band. They're kind of like um, it's hard to describe them. They're kind of like Linkin Park meets synthwave, but really social commentary. And I just love that their stuff. And it's so interesting because the guy who's behind the band is a guy called Roman Rapak, and uh, he reached out to me one day. Go, hey man, I'm a huge fan of your like the stuff that you're doing, your shorts and stuff. I'm doing a music video. Would love to include. I'm like, yeah. What, what's your band? They're like, oh, it's Mirror Shot. I'm like what i'm a huge freaking fan they're like and he was like really because like i'm a huge fan of your work and it just i just love that mutual respect for each other flash forward today he's we've got a lot of his music tracks we did a deal with his um with his publisher called warp so warp rep him warp records and we've got and it's a dream to see like that we're now friends we're like really good friends over the years now we've become but they have like your friend stroke fan like you know i'm a huge fan getting their work in it that's a dream come true you know because usually you just get composers to kind of like match the tone of hans zimmer like i want more than yeah. dun, dun. here's my playlist yeah, yeah. Make it sound like <laughs> right this. yeah exactly Whereas I'm like, oh my god i've got a mirror shot tracks in my movie and it's what i would have done in a way if i was put temp music in my edit so you know that's where you go the whole music thing coming true is brilliant that's so good. Well, I want to check out Mirror Shot. It's not a band I'm familiar with. No, so I, will, check them out. Uh, I always like a follow-up after a podcast. So I'll, I'll check them out and I'll, uh, I'll, in the outro, I'll let the, let the fans know what I think. Not that anybody cares what I think about them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Stop, Simon. Okay, right. Let's move into, um, as a science fiction fan, has you'll enjoy this question. Explain what you do for a living to an alien. You know, I would say what I do for a living is I tell stories for a living. That's my job. You want to hear a great story, Mr. Alien? I'm going to tell you a great story. That's my job. Take a seat. Take a seat. Yeah. You know, put your phasers away. Put, put the ray gun down. <laughs> put the comedy 1950s ray gun down. <laughs> I love that. That's the shortest one we've had and could arguably be one of the best. Ah. Yeah, I love that. It's great. What we do. 
storytellers. I exactly. bang on about it on every with all this tech and all this amazing yeah. all this amazing software we work, it's all boils down to a great story. Well told. 100%. So completely agree with you. So we're gonna get into formative years, Has. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually wanted to be an astronaut. Really? I know. It's probably why I love science fiction so much, you know, specifically space movies. I just wanted to be an astronaut. I was obsessed. You know, I knew everything about the moon landing. I would like go to the library and read the books. I would read Arthur C. Clarke. I would read Philip K. Dick. Uh, you know, I was reading like William Gibson, like when all my friends were like out, you know, playing out. I just loved soaking all that material. And I read a lot of comics as well, um, like Mobius and so on. Um, so I just loved space so much. And I think when I got to, the, I think I was like, I don't know, last year at GCSE when they had some career people come in and they're like, what would you like to be? I'm like, I want to be an astronaut. I go, okay, well, be prepared to join the military. I'm like, hell no, I'm not joining the military because back then you need to join the military. I don't think you have to now. Now it's like, you know, you get really good space cadet training if you're a scientist or a botanist. But um, back then I'm like, oh, no, I'm not really vibing the military thing right now. I'm a peaceful guy. So um... it's almost the same example that you gave about your business partner going, yeah, I want to do this and I want to do all this amazing stuff. And I go, no, but we've got budget to think about. And it's like, I want to be an astronaut. I want to go and fight aliens. And so, no, 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 you've got to go. And be in the military and potentially kill people. You know, I'll do that first. Maybe <laughs> go to war. It's pretty much kind of that, exactly. Um, but but you know, it's interesting because like everything that like, I I reference is still like I still I'm, I feel like I'm still that kid that wants to be you know that that seven year old that wants to be an astronaut. You know, whenever I'm like coming up with shot ideas or even when we're in development of scripts or even in the edit or anything. You no, know, the question is like, how can I make you know the audience feel overwhelmed the same way I felt when I watched. Um, silent running or et for the first time or close encounters you know or even blade runner when i was 12 i'm like that overwhelming feeling and that's the same thing that i felt like you know if i'm gonna be an astronaut i'm gonna be in zero g floating you know, it's that fantastical wonderment yeah love that blade runner when you were 12 that must have blown your mind i don't know what i was watching at first i'm like what is this this is like like dark and gritty it's it's dealing with like these these replicants that are not real but they have feelings and you got the voint comp test what uh blew me away but i think for me like you know it was one of those movies i just watched a million times i, I rinsed that vhs like, i got to the point where it was like you know it was unwatchable that vhs right um and then when the dvd yeah. came out i bought that i bought the final cut um I, and when they played it at the prince charles cinema several times I went and watched it, even though I've seen it like a million times. It's one of those films I could never mm. get bored of. And I, I just, I can't really figure out why, because like, you know, my partner, she would say, you know, you've seen this for like, you know, the, the 1.2 million time mm. of your life. I'm like, yeah, I know, but it's just something that just keeps drawing me to that movie. And I, I think a lot of it is atmosphere. Mm. You know, it was something that I was just like, it dealt with, with complex issues of identity, which, you know, I yeah. felt like, you know, when I was growing up in school, I was like, literally the only brown guy by the way in school and um and i'm like yeah. what am i doing here um and i really sometimes <laughs> felt like maybe i'm that replicant you know i have to fit in and hope no blade runner mm. takes me out that kind of thing. um that's a great answer thank you so you didn't become an astronaut um uh you became what you are today and uh i want to talk about the uh, university you went to and what made you choose uh university of london city university yeah so city university i think it was like yeah it's an old street between old street and angel uh here's the thing simon i didn't choose that uni <laughs> mm. i did not choose that uni um i wanted to go to dundee 
to do video game design. Um, but my parents are very, um, and I love them, bless them. They care for me and everything. But they, you know, it started from when I was in college, actually, this decision making where, you know, when I, when they were like, pick whatever course you want has, you know, I'm sure you'll love it. I'm like, yeah, sure. I'm going to pick art, fine art and design and tech. They're like, yeah, being conservative, they're, you know, in terms of like, you know, Typical Asian parents. My parents from Mauritius, by the way. So not like they're not like Indian. Oh really? Yeah, they're from Mauritius. My wife's my my wife's parents are from Mauritius. We could be related, Simon. Some you know, we, you never might know. Be a few degrees of separation going on, but you never know. Tiny anyway, island, I, I, dude. I everyone knows everyone. <laughs> That's for another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they were like, "Hey, look, we, we we're really concerned. Like, you know, we we want you to be secure and you know, get in a career that we know you could like get a job. Essentially, like you know." banking looks good has what do you think that i'm like no pharmaceutical what about that i'm like no so eventually we kind of compromised in college where i did um i did computer science and i did um art and design and tech um actually no computer science maths and and design and tech and design and tech had a lot of it was cdt so it's basically a lot of design and art involved Mm -hmm. in a way um and (laughs) little did they know i was scheming away and actually made a video game level out of that because when you combine code and art what do you get you there get you a video game Magic happens yeah and they're like <laughs> damn he's good we can't answer we, we can't contest that so um so when it came to university though there was you know you know we, we're not like super rich or anything and my parents because i was like the first son in the family, i've got like two siblings and they just didn't mm-hmm. want me to go travel all the way to dundee so i go like, look why don't you pick somewhere a little bit local this looks great what about this and i and in city university had this course called media um was it media communications which literally is one of those courses where it's kind of like a mishmash of everything it's kind of like an it's like a love death and robot anthology right there's everything in that yeah and um (laughs) and it seemed because it had journalism it had psychology in there but also had computer science had java programming kind of way back now java and c plus plus um but it had a really good mix of stuff that I found interested in. I'm like, you know, I love the idea of psychology. I love journalism. And you're going to find out later how all of these actually got me to where I am today. Um, and I love <laughs> the idea of coding with art. And the uni seemed really cool. So, I, you know, I did that. I think I was like three years plus one year placement. And for the one year placement, I ended up working in a video game company called um, Davis Studios in Camden, which obviously are no longer there. But I was hired mm. as a just as a as a I don't know, an intern that just do whatever needs to be done. And I obviously sat next to the to the art director there, or called Kevin Wafer, who I'm still friends with, by the way. And um, he saw my portfolio. I did this really cruddy portfolio where I was using things like Poser. Do you remember Poser and Bryce? Do you remember those <laughs> software? Back. Yeah. So <laughs> I kind of thought I was badass by you know on my on my you know Pentium seventy five. Um, PC computers kind of putting these graphics together. I'm like, oh my God, this looks awesome. And I've shown it. And obviously they're like, yeah, this is a little bit cheesy. But the fact that you took the initiative to put stuff together to kind of express yourself as an artist, that's enough for us to get you in as an intern. And from there, I learned 3D Studio. Well, it was called 3D Studio Max. It was called 3D Studio R4 mm-hmm. and Character Studio for Animation. Then Alias Wavefront came in. As I learned that. And eventually, you know, I realized as you're doing all these jobs, that's the great thing about being an intern back then in games companies is you get to try everything. And this this kind of gives you a little picture of what it was like back then. People smoked at their desks, okay? Whoa, People smoked. At, it's like an episode of Mad Men or something. So you can imagine coming home Jurassic every day Park stinking the cigarette. I know. Yeah. It, was, it was insane. I eventually moved to a different desk. 
Um, but what was interesting, I learned so much that I realized what I didn't like and what I did like. And the stuff that I didn't like was modeling. I just couldn't okay. really put geometry together in a way that these amazing artists do it so well. I mean, I'm able to yeah. take a cube and bash it into the cover to get stuff done. But then you have things like vertexes that need to snap your vertices together in order to create clean mm. geometry in order for it to be optimized in the game engine. Because if you have vertices that are flowing, you know, polygons that are straight or normals that are flipped. So I'm sure CG model listening to this going, yes, that guy messed up, you know, flip normals <laughs> and floating vertices. You know, you just won't work in the game and it'll, it'll just cause all these mm. errors and so on. So but what, I, what I accidentally fell into was cinematics because what I was doing one day was we we're preparing for um, to go to E3 to show the game, which is a game called Motocross Mania, which is um, like mm -hmm. on PC and PlayStation 1 that we were doing it on. I know, this really shows my age, by the way, Simon. Oh, it. my God. Um, <laughs> Don't, you're in good company, believe me. <laughs> okay. I think That's I might cool. remember that game on PS1. <laughs> okay, so, um, but they were they needed to someone to put together, like, uh, sort of like a presentation package. And I'm like, well, I know how to edit. I know a little bit of compositing in After Effects, like very early Adobe After Effects and combustion. So I kind of put some stuff together and I was going in the game and I was I got the programmers to create me a cinematic camera that I can just kind of move around as someone's playing the game and I can capture it, right? It was kind of like, if you think about it, it's kind of weird because I'm using Unreal now doing the same thing. Except back then, we were doing it on like PlayStation 1 dev kits. And I was able to capture all of that, put together this edit, put music and showed it. My boss was like, we, we're not going to fire you finally. No, and that's your niche. You should You should head up. The cinematic division. I'm like, oh my god, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be like the head of cinematics. Yeah, it's just me on my own, by the way. Just so you know, <laughs> so, so it wasn't really. I've but, been there. So to me, like, oh my one god, man. <laughs> yeah, one yeah. man. But it was amazing because I was still at uni, and when I finished uni, I went full time to work there, and eventually I ended up moving to various companies. But I was always in that cinematic mode, and I think a lot of that is because I didn't go to film school, right? Um, so for me, I was learning how to tell stories using a very optimized way very i would say low budget not financially but low budget in terms of polygon and graphic resources like now you can throw a million polys and trillions of polys it's fine you know you have all these like 4k 8k textures back then it's 64 by 64 tile textures to make something look good and you got a uv wrap it you didn't have things like displacements or anything like that back then and i think that's where my guerrilla filmmaking be smart of your resources kind of attitude comes from because then flash forward like several 10 years later or something or 20 years I'll, um, I'm making movies and I've still got that mentality like be smart of your resources that's so cool yeah wow what a story so that leads us neatly into big break which you've kind of touched on already but what would you consider to be your 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 official break into industry because it may not be that first you know entry level role yeah um I think for me, the first break was actually in visual effects when I got a job doing post viz on this, um, this tiny movie called The Dark Knight. Um, oh, over never heard of that movie. Yeah, it's a tiny director called Nolan. And um, but yeah, and this again, I always shout. But it's like uh, my friend Faraz Hamid, who was like he's like this previous god, previous legend. He's gonna hate me for saying this, um, but you know he was like, hey, look, we need a compositor but also someone that understands storytelling and someone that understands um, 3D just to put stuff together. I can't tell you what the movie is, but do you want the job? Like, do you want to go and interview for the job? And it's coming to call them Envisage, um, which I think they're still going around. They, they do previews and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and the two supervisors there was Martin Chamney and a guy called Nick Bain, I think. Nick something. Anyway, um, and they interviewed me and they didn't tell me what the movie was. They go, look, you know how to use Shake. That's great. We need a compa. We don't have compas. We're all 3D here. As you can see, we do previous. But you also understand a bit of 3D and you can deal with renders and put stuff together. I'm like, yeah. And they gave me the script and it was called like Rory's First Kiss, which is the code name they use in industry because they never used the real name, right? And then on my first day, the first shot I see on my screen was like, Morgan Freeman and Batman. I'm like, lost my shit. Obviously trying to keep it cool, <laughs> but like lost my shit. Like, oh my God. And, but the big break wasn't the fact that I was working on a Batman film. The big break was how much I learned working on that project. Uh-huh. You know, obviously again, like kudos to my friend Faraz, who just like, you know, he took a pun and like recommended me for the job. And, you know, in the small team that was working there at Pinewood, and our job was to just visualize the movie, visualize parts of the movie, whether it's a truck flip into the sonar screens. And I learned so much about editorial. I learned so much about, you know, how filmmakers think, because you'll get notes from the visual effects supervisor, the client side VFX supervisor that would work with the director. And I just learned so much about pacing and editorial and how important temps are and how to get your temps. Because you've got to remember, we were bashing temps together very fast, IMAX resolution, to get it for screenings. So you got to learn how to like create something that's representable of the movie, even though it's not final. So I learned so much in that. And then my second big break was being a visual effects supervisor. And again, isn't the fact that I, what, what the project was as such, it was more about the people I was working with. And the company for that was a company called Jellyfish Pictures, where I was a, um, I was a compositor, a lead compositor using Nuke. And um, for some reason we had to, the VFX supervisor that was on the show had to go, had to leave, and they needed someone just to step in for the interim, you know, for temporary purposes. And since I knew the project so well, and because I was the lead comp on it, I jumped in. I'm like, I'll do it. And my boss at the time was uh, Phil Dobry, who's the owner. He goes, okay, how's, yeah, sure. You know, you seem responsible. You know, you know the clients well, and you know the show. And I ended up being a VFX supervisor. I stayed on. <laughs> and I learned so much. I, and not just like how to put how to run a show and how to work with amazing artists. Um, and again, I credit Phil Dobry. You know, if he's listening, like kudos to Phil Dobry mm. because he took a pun on me. He's like, yeah, okay, you know, usually VFX supervisors come from a certain place, but yeah, you love storytelling and yeah. you're a compositor and you know the client, you know the show. And you know, the company was tiny, man. It was like a like twelve people maybe. Mm. Now it's like this huge, gigantic company. Now with like offices in Brixton and so on. But you know, we were in Margaret Street, like this tiny office in Margaret Street. And um, and he took a pun of me, and I really worked my ass off to really prove yeah. that I wanted to stay as a VFX supervisor. And to do that, you you listen to the clients. And when a client comes to a problem, you don't even though the problem is bombastic. It, here, here's here's what a typical VFX supervisor's day is. Right, a client will say, "I got this amazing bombastic idea." I've got this half the schedule and I have this amount of money. Figure it out. Oh, we're shooting tomorrow, by the way. And you come in mm. on set to make sure that we shoot plates correctly. So, you know, you, you become a problem solver. You become, you become the guy like, I'm going to figure this shit out. I'm going to figure this stuff out for you and whatever it takes. I'm going to probably come out of ideas. I'm going to combine ideas together. I'm going to talk to the relevant people like the CG supervisors or or the person that's responsible for fluids or most of the time the tracking artists who are like, 
please shoot a lens grid, please. If there's anything you do, shoot a lens grid. I'm like, okay, shoot in a lens grid, shoot in Chrome ball. In fact, yes, sometimes I say, don't worry about the Chrome ball, please get the lens grid because that's the hardest thing to get a good track, right? So mm, I learned yeah. so much. I think that to me, that's the big break where I got to learn so much about working with a lot of people, but also working on set totally. as well, where you get to work yeah, with some amazing directors. Like you see not just how they direct and how they work with actors, but the pressure behind it. Like, because you're sitting next to them behind the monitor, right? And you see it. You see it all. They're like, oh my God, I've got a million notes coming my way. I've got to make my day. And I soaked all of that stuff up like a sponge because, you know, mm. to me. So in a way, Simon, being a VFX supervisor was my film school because later on... It literally on, sounds like a yeah, it literally, like a yeah. rite of passage that you had to totally. do. Totally. And you also work with directors that are not so good. But you learn from that as well. You're like, oh, I'm, when I grow up and be a director, I'm not going to do that or what that guy's done or how he did it because clearly it isn't working. Um, and the thing that I learned working on the set, very similar to how what I learned working in VFX was earn a respect of your crew. The, the best directors I worked with were the ones that listened to their crew. In fact, the best directors I worked with actually very rarely shout. They're very rarely goes, I want this now. Because I had this thing in my head. Like, oh my it's quite cliche, isn't it now? That, it is. The, the shouty VFX. <laughs> well, I, I just, I always had this thing in my head that directors were like demanding, like, I need it now. Get off my set. I don't know what I was watching, but like the best directors were like very calm. Like, hey, I really like this, but if there's an alternative, please suggest it. I'm like, oh my God. And the whole crew, the, the whole, like, whether you're the gaffer, where you're, whether you're the cinematographer, the production designers, they would all do, they'll work 110% for you. Because the, because you are genuine, and I think that's where I think the honesty and transparency that I learned was, you know, working with those type of directors for sure. A great answer, one of one of our finest answers has to date. <laughs> um, so no disrespect to the other, how many guests we had? Seventeen. I probably um, know so, them. So it's fine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can duke it out with them. So going to move into the geeky section. Uh, what's been your favourite? And there's been a lot, right? So what's been your favourite project, show, job, whatever you want to call it? to work on oh that's a really tricky one like a favorite child basically I, th I think it would be my first feature film the beyond because it was it was bootstrapped and homegrown and i think i made a lot of friends working on that and i think it helped define me as a filmmaker not just creatively mm. but um from a personal level as well you know like the beyond mm. was basically it it was born from my short film Project Kronos. So Project Kronos was one of the shorts that I did in 2013 that um, I made while I was a VFX supervisor um, on various shows. And one of them was this big BBC show. So I was surrounded by editorial constantly, right? And um, and this is where the love for space comes in because I really want, I love the NASA website. I would just constantly look at the NASA. It was like the NASA website for me was like Netflix back then. I was just constantly just look at the latest <laughs> stuff. Oh, my JPL have uploaded this new like image from the Voyager that they've just taken 13 years to get signals from. I'm like, this is amazing, right? And one day I'd, I read a small print that you can download all that stuff for free. So I made a fake documentary a 13 minute or 12 minute documentary where it, I kind of made this idea that we put the human brain in the, in a ball and we sent it out into space, you know, to the far reaches of interstellar travel. And one day we get a, 
bing, we get a signal back. But a signal is not a radio signal, it's a subconscious signal from the brain that's made contact with another subconscious. I know it's going all meta now. Um, it's going all like this. deep. <laughs> and I made it because I just wanted to do something that was science fiction, hardcore, and mm. I just wanted to get out of my system. But I also hired a bunch of actor friends that I met at festivals and said, hey, here's a bunch of scripts, just pretend to be a scientist. And I kind of intercut it like a mockumentary, kind of like the opening of District mm. 9 in a way, right? Anyway, I put it online and thing went viral. <laughs> like, it literally went viral. Amazing. I was getting calls from like managers and agents from the US, from LA, from Hollywood. Some of them assumed I lived in Hollywood because all the actors, I made them do American yeah. accents. Some of them were really good at American accents. Okay. Um, actually, a little, um, a little Easter egg for all you listeners out there that are in visual effects. Victor Perez actually stars in the short film. That's right. No He's way. in the short film. Yeah, he turned right. up one day on, on, on the shoot. And I didn't know, but he actually did acting when he was back in Italy. You know, he, he had some acting. I'm like, dude. Of course, yeah. So I'm like, and he really loved the idea of what I was doing. So I'm like, I need a favor from you. Like one of the million favors I asked while I'm making a short film. Um, could you just be yourself? Because I, I, I love the way he presented like at the foundry yeah. and talked about composite. I'm like, just be yourself. But also... If I was to tell you I'm putting a human brain in a ball and we're sending it out into space and people are going to donate their brains for this, what are going to be your thoughts? And he goes, that's freaking crazy. In the most Victor Perez way, I'm like, that's what I want. <laughs> camera, let's film him. And we got him on the camera and he's actually, he's, he's in the trailer and everything. <laughs> yeah. So what's his character? Is it? It's just random scientists. Just a random dude. I think, I think <laughs> the names of the scientists one too. But the point is that the, the, the short, the short went viral and it got me into Hollywood. And um, Amazing. it was really interesting because like, I had no idea what I was getting myself in for. I assume I had to do like seven movies. The film hadn't even gone to a festival, by the way. It was straight all, it was like Vimeo staff pick. I think the minute, the minute it got a Vimeo staff pick, it was like, boom. But then when you think back at, back at that now you realize it wasn't just about it was like a really cool weird science fiction movie it's about timing and i think that's the thing that i tell mm. everyone whenever i says oh, i want to make my movie i've got this great idea or i want to do this or i want to do that i want to progress in this company a lot of it is down to timing yes you do all of those things you can go make your movie tomorrow you can go and progress in your company tomorrow of course you can nothing's stopping you but to do it well and to have an impact is all down to timing even right down to the decisions we make, the type of movies we make today or the type of movies that we're going to release is all down to timing. And I think for us, like when I when I released that short film in 2013, there was a bubble of science fiction short films that were out. You know, there was, um, there was a short called True Skin um, that was with augmented reality. There was a bunch of short film, a film called, short film called Raw. There was loads. There's just tons of CG heavy films. And a lot, lot of Hollywood managers were then picking VFX artists turning into directors right you see loads of like vfx artists turned right like gareth edwards is a, is a classic one right and um and a bunch of other like really really cool guys that are doing movies today and here's the thing you'll think at the end of the story i got to make my first feature well hey i'm in hollywood <laughs> 2013 got assigned to major agents a hollywood manager and I was writing for 20th Century Fox. I was writing for Paramount. I was, you know, some of it I was writing on spec. Some of it I was getting some money to write. But my CV looked pretty cool. Like, oh my God, you're writing for 20th Century Fox. You're writing, yeah. this is dope. That's good, right? Yeah. Newsflash, none of those projects ever got made. And they never do. That's the problem with, it's not a problem. It's just mm. the way Hollywood works, right? The rumors um, are true, right? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. so 2015, I'm, you know, writing more projects. But what's wrong with this picture? I'm not behind a camera on a big 
Hollywood set shooting the next Marvel film. I'm working in visual effects. In fact, I was working at LexHag um, as a VFX producer on this really cool show called Poldark. And Dan Marbrook and Alexis Hagger, two guys, amazing guys, they, they knew as a filmmaker. And they go, hey, look, come work for us. And we know you're a filmmaker. You may want to take time off to do your stuff. You can do that. I'm like, oh, my God. And I was a VFX producer. So I was dealing with a lot of scheduling, budgeting, using F-Track and so on. And um, at one point, I got to the, to the point, I'm like, am I ever going to make a movie? And I was speaking to my partner about it. She goes, I don't know, man. Like, you, you just got to keep pushing. I speak to every agent in LA. They're like, we love your stuff, Has, but it's just about making the first feature. And the thing is, doesn't matter how many awards you've won, doesn't matter how many short films you've made, you're still a first-time filmmaker because you haven't made a feature film that's been commercially released. So I'm like, how am I going to fix that problem? Well, the only way to fix that is to invest in yourself because if no one else is going to invest in you, you got to invest in yourself, right? And I did. So I you know, had a little bit of money saved up for a house. I think you know where this is going. Um, <laughs> do not do this at home. Um, <laughs> but basically, I had some money set up for a house. And at that time, also, the Project Kronos IP was with a company called Bender Spink and Armory Films. And the way upshitting works, like a book, they give you X amount of like $1,000 to like hold the rights and then you develop it. And I was developing this project with them. The budget was like $30 million. It was, no one's going to give me $30 million back then, let alone now, right? So um, I'm like, this is going to go around in circles. They go, oh, no, we're going to re-option it again. I'm like, I'm going to take the rights back, but obviously I can't make the script that you guys paid me for because obviously you own the rights. And they're like, yeah, but what are you going to do? Are you going to find another producer? I'm like, no, I'm going to make it myself. They're like, oh, wow, balls yeah, yeah, yeah. to you, man. Go for it. Go with God, all that stuff. I'm like, cool. I'm like, shit, I've got to make it now. So I went back and made the thing that the short film did really well, which is the fake documentary. I knew I could pull it off resourceful because, you know, I didn't have to, like, match the next science fiction movie. It can be very homegrown. And during that time, there was a company called Blumhouse that was doing a lot of those um, found footage oh, yeah. movies. That, all the horror yeah, movies. Yeah. yeah, Paranormal Activity. Yeah, exactly. And they're doing extremely well on the whole Blair Witch thing. So I knew I couldn't make a found footage film, but I knew I could do something that had that homegrown feel to it. But the most important thing is have a good story. So I'm, I put some money together from the house and I think it was like 20, end of 2015, we just went into production, started shooting it. We got Black Magic on board, Adobe on board, HB on board. I kind of did a lot of my um, marketing way in advance. And I think a lot of that came from because I did marketing or journalism at university. So that module All did right, come yeah. in handy. Um, but Let's I, call I, back to an earlier answer. I love it. Totally, right? Um, and, and it was hard. But what I loved about it was it defined me as a filmmaker in terms of, how I was making movies in terms of how I worked with cinematographers, how I worked with a team. How do you bring people together to try to get them on that, you know, six or seven month journey of making this movie. Um, and then a really good story is um, I was in post and I was editing and, you know, I was editing the first like half hour of the film and an investor came along or an investor, a friend bought an investor around and didn't tell me he's an investor, by the way. He goes, Oh, that's my buddy's movie. You should show him a bit. And I'm like, okay. So I showed him a bit on my laptop saying it's work in progress. It's not finished. That kind of thing. And, and the investor was like, and he's an American guy called Craig Cohen, who I'm still friends with today. He's like, this is really good. And I heard that you funded this entire thing yourself. I'm like, yeah. And he goes, well, I'd love to put some money in because you've clearly got skin in the game. And it really made me think that the minute you got skin in the game, the minute you're in, you know, the minute that train's moving, they all want to board that train, right? Whereas if the if the train is stopped or, yeah. or it's not left the station because it needs oh I need more financing or I can't move I can't leave this train can't move until I get all the passengers on that's the kind of like um, analogy I use right whereas on this train it's like maybe 
10 people on that train there's myself and all the people that really want to make this movie and we're like we're going full steam ahead if you want to jump on this train it's moving they loved it so the investors like look how much you need and i'm like at the time i'm like i don't need anything else i want to make this because i I had been in that whole hollywood thing that i just felt like i take someone else's money oh my god i'm just gonna slow down and he goes well let me ask you this question then if you had more money what would you put in i'm like well i'm doing a lot of the effects myself i'm doing the editing myself doing a lot of the shooting myself well the only thing that i'm not that i love but can't do well or can't do at all is music and sound design i'll put money in that because then that would be like oh my god i'll be on the level right i could bring in a great composer sound designers and he wrote me a check he goes here you go off you go <laughs> i ran Amazing. to the bank and cashed that check believe me <laughs> yeah it's so quick and um, back in a minute yeah, yeah exactly two um, hours later but but it really, it really showed that, you know, if you, if you are leading, people will follow you. You know, you've got, you shouldn't really rely on people to, to, to get something made. You know, I always have like amazing, like some of my closest friends are like talented writers, talented filmmakers, VFX artists that are just way better filmmakers than me, I, in my opinion. And they're like, oh, I don't know, I'm just waiting, just waiting for someone to come give me that money or, you know, it's just not ready yet. I'm like, oh my God, just get that train moving and i think the thing that i think the attitude to have and the attitude i had by the way which obviously i didn't tell my partner this i, I can say this now was if i fail i fail but at least i fail on on my own terms not someone else's terms right and don't be afraid to fail i think there's i think we're in a you know we're in a culture sometimes that failure is like a big bad thing making mistakes is a big bad thing was i kind of embrace mistakes and yes boy when, when i made my short films I made so many mistakes. Like I wasn't really like communicating to the DP well. I wasn't really, you know, planning stuff properly. But it's okay to make those mistakes in your short film. It's a short. It's okay. And even on your features that you will make mistakes, you know, like sometimes you think it's a great, it's a great shot design. And then, and then when you shoot it, you're like, actually, that isn't as cool as I thought it would be. <laughs> or or as I pitched it, then you just got to adapt, right? But just don't be afraid to That's fail. That's the creative process, isn't it? I mean, it's just mistakes 100%. and you'll make mistakes tomorrow and the next day and the next day. 100%. Just, it's all about sharpening your tools. That's, so, that's creativity, it? right? Creativity, you know, some of the best sequences. In fact, here's a little anecdote. So one of the one of the things that happened when we were shooting the movie, we did screen tests and we screen tested the movie, um, which is very daunting, by the way, for any filmmakers out there, you can all relate to this, like, you work on that baby for like a year or something or two years and then random people are gonna be in the cinema because i don't like that that's rubbish you're like ah. so but we had the scorecards and um and with a lot of feedback came in. a lot of people loved the movie but there's three things that came back well two things i think first one was what are we watching exactly now bear in mind i was signed to a manager in hollywood and the manager in hollywood was like Loads of effects, loads of effects, bombastic effects, alien ships. Going to get you the next Star Trek gig, and I'm like, oh, okay, sure, <laughs> um, I want to do that. And then, and and the other thing was the other note that came back was, um, oh yeah, and oh by the way, on that note, the reason why people didn't know what they were watching was because you had these gorgeous CG rendered, beautifully comped shots. I may say so myself. And um, <laughs> but at the same time, we're shooting like talking heads documentary found footage stuff so the audience just couldn't get their head around like what they're watching they'll get to this amazing cg sequence and then you cut to this like handheld shot um and then i fought back of blumhouse like when you watch a blumhouse found footage the first text that comes up is the following footage is found footage tapes compiled together blah 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 you know instantly okay i'm watching a bunch of found footage tapes i know what i'm in for whereas the first cut didn't make sense so that was one um and the other thing, also, the other thing that um, that came back was, um, there was it was just so visually beautiful. There wasn't enough drama. 
And again, you learn, then you start to read, because you get so carried away as a visual effects artist, or as a filmmaker that, that comes from a very visual-driven approach, you can get so consumed with making stuff look good, making stuff look good, when you realize that, you know, the audience actually don't really care so much. I mean, yes, they want me to look good. Of course they do. But once they're in for the first few minutes, they're now in it for the story and for the characters. So then we end up doing reshoots, which like is not a dirty word anymore. But, you know, I encourage that on every project. Now we budget reshoots standard, right? For any for, for a million reasons. And we did reshoots and it made the film a million times better. But how did we address the first note, which was how do we make the CG sequences look like they're, you know, I had to make them look shitter, <laughs> in other words, like <laughs> yeah, so, not too polished, yeah. Yeah, how do I do that? Because I had like I don't know, like one thousand two hundred shots, and oh, by that time, by the way, Simon, the distributor wanted the movie. They were re- they were happy to release it based on the trailer. So I'm like, oh shit! So I could say, well, let that one go. We've solved it now. Or I could hold back, and you know, since I did finance it, why don't I just try those notes out? And that's another thing that I learned was how to take notes, right? Like as a VFX supervisor, you get notes from clients and that's one thing. But getting notes as a filmmaker is a whole different thing. You you can get very precious very easily. You get very defensive to go, well, what do you know? You know, I spent ages making that film. Yeah, that's your inner voice telling you this, right? Um, but I, I learned to take notes and I remember seeing this pages of notes. I'm like, oh my God. And then I kind of like took a break and went back to it. I'm like, you know what? They're just editorial notes. I could take a day out and try those notes out. If they don't work, they don't work. At least I tried it. And I would say seven out of 10 times, the notes that don't really resonate with you end up inspiring you to do other things. Like, for example, we're not doing reshoots. We realize, wait, let's pick a character which we should follow here. Because this is a documentary. Just pick one character. And we pick the character that you wouldn't think we would be picking, which is the head of the space agency as opposed to the astronaut, which became very interesting. Now we've kind of twisted it. But going back at how we fixed that shot, I had a light bulb moment. It's one of those moments where if you're put in a box in a corner, sometimes the best ideas come out when you're restricted. I reckon if I was given a shit ton of money, say, hey, here's a bunch of money to make those visual effects look more shitty or more in camera or whatever, right? Or make it look like it's shot on DV or whatever. Um, But because I didn't have that luxury, it's like you have no more money, you have no more time, you got to figure something out right now. This idea came to me. So I rang up my cinematographer, Adam Batchelor, and I said, um, bring over tons of black sheetings, gaffer tape, tripod, and a 4K Blackmagic Ursa camera, which you know was just came out on the market, and bring a 50mm lens and maybe a 24mm lens. And it was like, what are we doing at your house? I'm like, it's going to be awesome. I'm getting pizza. It's going to be great. So we taped up the, all the curtains and the windows in my living room. I had an Apple retina screen. In the short story, I basically play back all the visual effects from After Effects into the camera. And I was kind of rack focusing. I shot it raw. I was adding, you know, like camera shake. And then now when you cut that in-camera visual effects footage with the live action documentary talking heads, it's as if they're shot by the same person. And Cinefx, like obviously God rest their soul because Cinefx no longer exists. But when Cinefx existed, their website, they did the whole stories. They loved it. They loved supporting artists turned directors. They loved that. And I, I, that's one of the cool things I loved about Cinefx. And their website did this tagline, like the, the visual effects are so good. They look like they were shot in camera. And I'm like, they were literally shot in camera. Yes. So the lesson <laughs> of the story is sometimes the best ideas come out when you're, put in a corner and box don't expect money yeah 
to be the solution to everything. Sometimes it's the pressure. Yeah. Wow. Well, that was a great answer to your, your favorite job. <laughs> I love the detail has. Love it. Love it. Took about half the podcast, but that was the amazing. director's that was the director's <laughs> cut answer, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, nice yeah, nice yeah, the uh, nice nice uh, link up with Blade Runner. We'll uh, we'll do a Blade Runner style director's cut. Take, we can't take off the commentary though, so that's the only thing with podcasts. <laughs> Make it very challenging for the listener. Um so uh, Has what about your most challenging job then? I mean, have you have you covered it already or um is there one that stands out? Yeah, definitely. I think I think it was um, directing for Disney was probably when I say challenging, I mean this from like the most nicest place challenging, not challenging like oh my god, I'll never do it again because I'm actually doing a project at Disney at the moment. Um, um, but no, um, I was um, I was hired to direct the pilot for a show called Fast Lane, and how I got that was basically my second movie called Origin Unknown. The teaser trailers were being released by the distributor. And there was one like 30 second bumper teaser, which had um, the lovely Katie Sackhoff and my robot kind of like having this emotional moment together. Um, and I don't know if you, if you guys see the film, you can see I'm actually blatantly homaging Flight of the Navigator. Blatantly. No, I, I just I had to get had classic. To, I had to do a callback. I had to like, you know, a robot that's going down with a big, massive tube. Yeah. In a ship. Come on. Yeah. But that was my callback. It's a homage, um, of course. Totally. But it was really emotional between the robot and the human. And some executive at Disney saw it and goes, oh my God, this, this, this guy can direct hardcore emotion with a CG character and a CG character being a ball, by the way, with a light in the, in the middle and this amazing actress. So they, they, they reached out to my manager and said, listen, you know, we're, we're diversifying our director's list. Usually we hire kid directors or people that own the TV circle. We're going to go, we're going to, we're just going to break the rules at Disney today, Disney channel. And we're just going to like, go out to the UK and see if this director would be interested. So they, they sent an email saying, would you be interested? They, they sent this one pager and this one pager was really going to be the remake of Herbie. Do you remember Herbie? Yeah. Herbie goes bananas. Yay. Herbie goes bananas. <laughs> so it was going to be the remake of that. They couldn't make it because when they tested the IP at the time, kids just don't care about a Volkswagen talking, right? They just don't dig it. But they had greenlit the show. So they sent me this one pager, and this is like a tip to anyone that's listening that, you know, if you want to really get your foot in the door, um, they sent me a page and they, all they did it for me was like, would you be interested in taking a call? But I didn't do that. I went to my manager. I said, listen, give me a week to respond. Tell him that Haz is like in the middle of something and he's going to respond, but he really wants to do it, but he wants to send a bespoke email to you guys. So I took like a week and um, I did this 50 page pitch deck. I, I, I pre-vised the the car, what it's going to look like. I just went full on. And in my head, I mean, obviously I was very naive back then. Like now I'm like, no, I'm going to come have a meeting. But back then I'm like, oh my God, it's not every day Disney gets to ask you to pitch on something. So whenever someone that's huge, a company, a person, a studio, or an IP or project wants you to get involved, give it your all in because they that is probably what's going to get you the job. And essentially, like I didn't have any experience in directing television. Oh my God let alone kids' television. Have they seen my last two movies? They're hard science fiction movies. They're dark, right? But <laughs> I just went all in. And the executive emailed back, said like, well, first, a, a yes or no would have done. But secondly, what? He's designed the car. He's designed the whole... You know, people get paid for this stuff. I'm like, well, I just took the initiative because I really wanted to like, you know, to visualize and just to really show how, how much I love the project. 
They go, what are you doing in January? And this is like December. What are you doing in January? I'm like, well, my first movie's come out. I'm going to do some press. I'm going to go, you know, meet other studios. Right. What time do you land specifically? I'm like 11 a.m., but I'm going to be jet lagged. Great. You're coming straight to the Burbank. And you're going to you just meet a few people. They just want to just hear your thoughts more. So I'm, I go there and it wasn't um, it wasn't a few people. Wow. It was an entire office, like an entire office. <laughs> yeah, It was like the longest table. Every executive was there. The showrunner was there. And they sat me down and go, listen, um, Whoa. they love you. That's crazy. We think you're great. We love the pitch. They're printing my pitch deck. They put my little sizzle reel that I did on the screen. Everyone loves you. We just have a few questions. And... Um, the big question is, um, have you directed comedy before? I'm like, uh, no. And at that point, I'm, like, I'm not getting a job, clearly. And they go, right. But if you, but if you did direct, and, and by the way, before I went on the on the plane, they gave me the script, the pilot script, which I had to sign a million NDAs. Mm-hmm. And I read the script. And there's this big car chase sequence, and I love car chases, right? And um, so the showrunner, this guy called Matt Dearborn, who's now a really close friend of mine, he was like the guy that I was so scared of. And this is the challenging yeah. bit because he didn't come from visual effects and he didn't he, he was not a fan of those effects heavy shows you know he wouldn't watch star trek or anything like that or star trek, star trek discovery he's hardcore emmy award-winning comedy writer he does comedy 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 he's kind of old this is why he's been in the industry for a long time mm. and he's kind of that guy that looks at you, you go how old are you he's that guy that will ask you that question right so i'm like oh my god i'm so going to die and he was like just give me and give me an example of something <laughs> in the page and how would you Brilliant. pull this off and with comedy i'm like in my head i'm like how do you do this i'm not david brent i can't come up with something like this um but i just what i did was i just tuned everything out in my head i'm like if i'm gonna go out (laughs) i'm gonna go out and start i'm gonna balls this up i'm gonna balls this up in style so they're gonna remember the guy who balls it up that's all i had in my head and i think that's a tip i kind of give everyone who's like scared Mm. to go on stage just go you're gonna you're gonna balls it up it's okay exactly but do it in style right that's the cool thing yeah totally so i went in there and i got my iphone and obviously i'm not going to impersonate exactly the way i yeah. did because i don't remember Blaze it like, very well but yeah. it was along the lines of mm, moving my phone around and again a camera goes through the car popcorn flies out doesn't matter where the popcorn's from it's cinema i did this whole sequence and like <laughs> i was i tuned everyone out i didn't know what people were looking at and by the time i finished everyone just stood up and applause and i'm like really it's that easy no but i think the, the thing was the showrunner then told me like when we're on the set it was like you got the job because firstly um you pitched it from a place of heart and you pitched it like you were an eight-year-old and we find with directors that are making kid shows mm-hmm. they sometimes don't put themselves in the fun place they try to play safe like oh we can't say this we can't do this these are kids whereas i just went ahead and just become that kid and they felt like that was how I got the job. But also I got the job because like, there's a lot of visual effects in that film. I mean, that TV show, it's a mini show, yeah. right? So I was hired to direct two episodes. And I remember this is the challenging part now. Day mm. one of the shoot, I turn around and there's yeah. all these monitors behind me. There are executives watching every single monitor. And the cinematographer who's this amazing, like um, uh, New Zealand cinematographer called Neil, he goes, mate, don't look back, do your best. These guys there are there to to see if you f up, and that's literally they had a backup director and everything because I never directed. You know, this is a huge Disney show. They can't have they can't mess up like that. They, so they have yeah. contingency in place. So you can imagine the wow. pressure I was under. I'm like, oh my god. And what I did was, I just tuned out the fact that I was making a Disney show. And that's another tip I'm telling everyone: if you work on a big brand or you work on a big 
you know, big IP, just take that out of your head that you're working for a big studio. Take that out of your head that you're working on a big Star Wars movie or whatever. Mm. Just focus on the thing that you were hired to do and do well. And I was hired to tell the story and make my day, right? And by the time I finished the two episodes, um, I got a call from the head of Disney at the time, guy called Adam Burnett, who's now over at Mattel. Um, and he goes, and usually when, when that guy calls you, by the way, you're in trouble. That's usually when the big guy goes, I'm like, oh my God, I'm, I might as well go back home. I was in Vancouver. I was loving Vancouver. And he goes, oh no, I'm just calling up to say, um, congrats, I'm finishing your episode. Um, uh, but question I've got for you is how are you making your days? So for those of you who are, who are, who are listening to this podcast, making your days mean if you have 22 days shoot, you, you shoot everything as planned for 22 days. That's making your day. So like from nine till, or from six in the morning till eight in PM, you get everything in your day. And if you don't make your day, that means you've got leftover shots for the next day and it becomes a bit of a problem because you start getting backlogs, right? Um, but I was making my day. And um, and the other thing also was, hmm. I found out that they were, screen, they were gonna screen the pilot, or the first two episodes. And being a visual effects supervisor, I'd heard these words before, which is, it's okay, we get it. We know it's a temp effects. We, we, we get it. I had all these horrors in my head, like, oh my God, no, they don't get it. Because they're gonna say, that's horrible, that's horrible. And there's loads of green screen there, because we shot loads of interior shots, because obviously the kids, kid hours, we had to shoot them in the studio. Mm. I'm like, oh my God. So being a typical indie rookie, and this was the challenge moment, because I couldn't get my head into the studio filmmaking way. I still had that guerrilla filmmaking approach. I walked into the edit room and started cutting stuff together. And the editors were like, what are you doing? This is a union show. We have unions. You cannot do that. I'm like, ah. And then I'm like, okay, I'm going to step out again. I'm going to come back in. We'll start this again. Basically, they're screening the pilot. They're like, yes. So I'm like, but there's green screen everywhere. And they're like, it's okay. It's fine. And I'm like, no, we can't. It's not fine. This is my first pilot. I know exactly what the background should look like. So I rang up the effects company called Atmosphere Effects in, in, in um, Vancouver, I was like, listen, do you have the 3D car or anything? They're like, dude, we're gonna start effects until six months, man. We're just supervising for you. I'm like, but do you have anything? They go, yeah, okay, we'll send you some Maya files, you know, weirdo, go off and do your thing. And I basically temp comped, and eventually the editor gave me an, an edit assistant, which again, I'm like, what's an edit assistant? Wait, editors have assistants? Wait, what? I was completely new to this. And the edit assistant was amazing. He, he did it all in Avid. He kind of composed everything. I was in After Effects <laughs> doing temp comps. I fed it over to him. We all did it over the weekend. I bought them all pizzas and stuff. Um, that's the bribe, by the way. And um, they screened it. And a lot of the executives thought that the effects were actually pretty good. They're like, wow, these look pretty good. I'm like, no, there's green halos everywhere. It's not tracked. But, and... Um, so the the, exec, the the head of Disney were like, look, how are you making your days? And I said, look, I think it's because I feel like I'm not making a Disney show. I'm going in there to make a really cool show about these two girls in a talking car going on serious adventures. And I'm just having fun making it. And I'm going to just do whatever it takes. And, you know, one example, Simon, was there's a car chase. You can watch this on the trailer of Fast Lane if you see it on YouTube. The camera goes underneath the truck as the car zips by. And I remember pitching it to him because I love, you know, I love those action movies where the, you know, especially Michael Bay movies where the camera's doing all sorts of stuff and drones. And I remember like the head of production was like, well, we're going to have to like do a special rig. We need to lift the truck up. Yeah. We may need to CG photogrammetry the truck, all, all the expensive stuff. And I, and I was like naively said, well, what if we just stuck a GoPro on a radio control car and zip it underneath the truck? Kind of like they did in that movie Crank, right? In a Jason Statham movie. Oh, yes. Right? That's Same true. thing. The look they gave me, like, are you are you nuts? This is a Disney show. You are mad. 
but the cinematographer and the camera crew loved it. Like, this is a just a genius idea. So we we shot it. We actually did it without the executives knowing. We just like, well, I've got some time. I was making my day. Let's do that shot you want to do. How's I got a radio control car? We shot it. We put it in the trailer. It ended up becoming the big moment in the in the entire series. And that's my point. So sometimes don't overcomplicate things. Sometimes the most simplest old school idea is effectively the best. And, and that's a lesson that I, I felt like I would I bought from the guerrilla filmmaking world. That's amazing. What a story. Two two great answers to two. I mean, there's so <laughs> much to unpick out of those two answers. It's not, it's, uh, it's nuts. I mean, I'm going to move into the last four questions of the geeky section. Yep. And uh, sure. let's try and do it as a little bit sure. of a quick fire round because I'm desperate to get into yeah. the uh, the advice part of the uh, the episode. Where, uh, so who is your VFX hero? Has Who's the big hero? Ooh, probably, probably, yeah. Probably Dennis Murin. It's got to be Dennis Murin. Absolutely. ILM. Yeah. You need to say no more. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and what is the best? Now, these are hard questions. I don't, when I originally conceived these <laughs> back in the day, they, they felt unfair. But what is the best shot, VFX shot animation that you've ever seen? Just that one shot. <laughs> you know, for me, I think it's probably the bullet time shot in the matrix i know you're probably expecting to hear something like close encounter the third kind of thing but i remember standing in leicester square looking at the big screen that they had they were playing that the trailer and i stood there just waiting for that trailer to come back that bullet time shot blew my mind massively yeah and shout out to Jim godden on episode one season two who referenced the exact same ah, scene for the exact same question so again know. in good company <laughs> great answer nothing wrong with that at all and what is the show that stands out as what you would consider to be a masterclass or pinnacle of the art form? You know, what is the, the go-to? Again, if you had a gun to your head, because I know it's hard to pick one. You know, it will probably be, it will probably be Blade Runner. I tell you why, because like I said earlier on, it still stands up today. It's a good combination of optical effects. There was some very, very early CG in there, obviously, but for me, that is a good example of compositing, even though it's optical plates. But whenever I was a compositor, I look back at how do you match, you know, smoke and miniatures and real world live action together. That is the masterclass, man, for sure. For its time, and like you were saying earlier in the last, uh, well, where, you know, not the last one, but the challenging job is working with what you've got. And, 100%. And that is yeah. literally a film of its time, but still yeah. stands up now. It still Absolutely. looks amazing. Yeah, and as a bedfellow with um, the sequel as well, you know, they kind of work, don't they? Yeah. So the final geeky bit is character design. What is, in your opinion, is the best piece of character design a great character realized? Wow. Do you know, it's going to be interesting because for me, there's a character that I can't get out of my head at the moment. And it's from Arcane. The guys at Fortiche ah. have done this, like... Again, it's the animation. I love anime. I love animation. You know, you know, you know. If we, if you, if I, if I had to pick something that was back to when I was growing up, it'd be Ghost in the Shell. You know, the character mm -hmm. design yep. of Bateau. You know, the the sidekick guy. You know, the the cyborg guy. To me, it was like amazing character design because you could, he doesn't need to say anything. You know, you can tell a lot from his face, from his hairstyle, from the way he walks. That's anime. But recently, I just can't get out my head. Jinx from uh, from arcane you know what the guys have done stylistically how they've blended 2d with 3d blows my mind you know that is to me it's like that's a benchmark of today's animation in my opinion amazing, arcane for sure 
Well, again, another callback to a former episode, Alwyn Hunt of The Rookies. Uh, he praised that no end on episode three, was it he was on? So yeah, again, loving all this uh, crossover. <laughs> it's great. Okay, right, we're getting into kind of the final chunk of the pod, um, has, uh, and, and it's mainly around uh, advice for both uh, both audiences, both our aspiring talent trying to break into industry and industry. <laughs> They're the two, two audiences. And uh, the first question of that section is what the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best piece of advice I ever received was when I was working at Davis Studios as an intern, and I loved it so much that I didn't want to go back to uni. I'm like, why am I going to go back to uni? I'm living the dream. I'm going to get paid for this. Why not go back to uni to finish off a degree that I've already got a job on, right? And my boss, Daniel Bobroff, um, who ran the studio, gave me this really, really good advice that I still stick with today. And he's like, yes, Has, you could stay here. And I'm more than happy to keep you on and work. But here's the thing. When people find out that you went to uni for three years and then got a job, and decided to quit uni, how do you think that's going to look? It's going to look like someone that doesn't commit very well, doesn't stay true to his word, but most importantly, someone that just can't finish things. So my advice to you is when you start something, finish it. No matter how you do it, just finish it. And it's an, it's something that stuck with me forever. And he's absolutely right. It, you know, When I hear people start a project and then ditch it halfway to go somewhere else, I get that weird impression like, really? Oh, are you going to do that to me? So yeah. Start something, finish it. Doesn't matter how you finish it, just finish it. Get it done. Get the work Get done. Get it done. I think that's great. You know, I uh, one of the unintentional uh, themes of the podcast is uh, T-shirt slogans coming out of these conversations. And I'm, I want to get a, a range of podcast T-shirts with these uh, these nuggets from guests. And I love that. Just, just real talk advice. I think that's brilliant. So uh, the famous imposter syndrome question, Ooh. have you ever felt out of your depth or that you're faking it till you make it has? Every day, Simon, every day. And, you know, this is something that I'm very passionate about now in terms of sharing that I didn't share a lot, but I used to suffer from, suffer from anxiety a lot. People look at me and go, oh man, you're like a happy-go-lucky guy. I'm like, deep inside, I'm shitting it. I'm like, I have so much anxiety. When someone says, hey, Gonna review your gonna review your latest edit of your film. I'm like, oh my god! And then the imposter, imposter syndrome. I, I get like, I'm like, you know, at, at one point, I'm like, you know, at one point, like, I made two feature films, a TV show, and I wasn't getting any projects. This was like 2019, right? I wasn't. I was going to meetings after meetings, wasn't getting any projects, wasn't getting any gigs, and I got to the point like, am I like, have I just done the Rick Astley, just like do the one hit and and that's it, right? I'm like, am I that guy? I'm like, oh no, yeah, and. It's natural. Yeah, I speak to other filmmakers later on. They're like, yeah, dude, we, we go through that. We just don't share it. But yeah, absolutely. So it's okay to have imposter syndrome. I think I now look at imposter syndromes like, yeah, I'm going to fake it till I make it. But I'm not really faking it because I'm doing it. You still so deserve I, to be here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You worked your ass off to get to where you are. But I think you're always you're always going to have a level of imposter syndrome because every new project you do either has bigger budgets, bigger casts. Like, you know, when I was doing my second movie, I'm directing Katie Sackhoff, who was Starbuck in Battlestar Galactica. I was obsessed with that show. So you can imagine inside, I'm like, 
I'm obsessed. I've watched all this show like over and over again. And now I'm directing you, you know, obviously I never told her that because it'd be kind of awkward, but inside like, Oh my God, like, is she going to suss me out that I'm just like some fan dude that's directing. Um, and you get <laughs> that. And, onto the set. Yeah. Get, get off. But you know, here's the thing. There is no way to combat imposter syndrome, you know, and I find yeah. it just embrace it. Yeah. I'm going to fake it till I make it. Okay. Who cares? We're, look, here's the thing. Like we said earlier on this call, like no one knows everything you know there is no such thing as an expert you know someone may come out and go hey he is the legendary expert in tracking or in cinematography great but he isn't really he or she isn't the expert everyone's learning stuff like now we're you know, we're, we're doing projects in unreal engine like metaverse and no one knows what the metaverse no one knows what web3 is but today we're in that stage where everyone's like i was at fmx and everyone's like we don't know where this thing's going. We don't know where the metaverse is going. But guess what? We're all in it together to figure it out. And I love that. Yeah, let's ride that wave. Let's go on that journey. Totally. Yeah, and being a FMX chair this year, I mean, that must have been a healthy dose of imposter syndrome. It's a big festival. <laughs> Massively, Simon, because I remember 2011, I wrote an email begging to speak there. I'm like, please, <laughs> can I speak on that my little short film that I did? Um and and it's the same person that works there is yeah she was on my team and she goes yeah I still remember that email uh, yeah I remember very well you're that guy just constantly begged um, but here's the thing I think I how I got involved at FMX as the chairman was um, I think it was like last year I got a call because uh, I do FMX every year whether it's on site or whether you know for the last two or three years I've been doing the online version because of obvious reasons and um, but I've always been an advocate of that of that conference, mainly because of the people that I've met there, they've become lifelong friends, some of the collaborations I've done. And FMX as general is like, it felt like home, right? You know, I love SIGGRAPH and I love all the other shows, but there's something about FMX that felt like made by a bunch of artists for the artists kind of thing. Um, so when they asked, they first said, listen, we're, we, we want to shake up the festival this year or the conference this year. You know, traditionally we're just a bunch of like German, like bureaucrats, in a committee shaping this which is great but you know we want to we want to reflect today's times and we need someone to help us guide us there and they had a bunch of people they still won't tell me who the other people are by the way i don't think they will, ever will <laughs> but apparently there was like a list and my name came up you'll find out i'm sure i'll find out remember you're tenacious huh? you'll find out. <laughs> I, i'm not gonna stop till i find out <laughs> got the whole liam neeson on this i'll um, find you yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> but um no and, and <laughs> <laughs> and they were like um look basically your name came up because you're quite influential but also you share a lot online and stuff we want someone that's open to that so what's so the, the idea was i was going to come up and curate the show that was my job as a program just to curate the show like who do you want to speak at fmx this year yes you got your ilms talking about stagecraft you have your frame stores you have your npc the mill the your, your usual heavy hitters which 100 we should always have because they are what helped build the show. But I really wanted to have a lot of the independent voices at this year's show, specifically independent voices that were doing groundbreaking things. Like, you know, people people working in the world of virtual production, people working in the world of like Unreal Engine fusing video games and and cinema together. Um and it was it was it was a joy to be able to like curate based on the work that i'm fans of and you know i would say like 80 percent of them actually end up going there you know we had you know we had like jason chen from bronze studios who's working on fable he couldn't fly over but he actually did the online which was amazing and we had people from epic give talks and we but what i wanted to do was one big thing 
And the one big thing they say, if you if you could do one thing as program chairman, what would you do? And I went, you know what I said about going balls to the walls? Well, I'm like, I want to bring a virtual production stage at Stuttgart in the conference. And I want every single audience member, whether they're a student, a visitor, a mom or dad, to pick up the V camera and experience what it's like to be on a volume stage. Because not everyone has the luxury of going on a volume stage. No, I mean, even the people in visual effects that work as artists or or people that create the content, they don't actually go on the stage. So they're like, I've never been on the stage, never had the opportunity to. So I want to do that. And obviously you can imagine their faces like, what? <laughs> like, there's a million questions of how and logistics and blah, blah, blah. But Germans being Germans, they're efficient and they 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 will get it done. So we eventually managed to um, convince the, the lovely people at Epic because I had a relationship with Epic already. We had people from Disguise, people from Trackman, people from NCAM. And it was a good example of everyone working together to make the impossible happen. And it was just it was just so lovely to be able to see people going in and just moving the V cam around. And I'm like, oh my God, like these are just ordinary people. And I, I felt like that kid again. So yeah, that was my FMX. <laughs> That's super cool. So we're going another 80s reference for you, Has You're going to get into uh, your DeLorean. You're going to go back in time to visit your teenage self. And what advice are you going to give your teenage self if you could oh, go back and the technology existed? Wow. Um, that's a really tough one because I was pretty much like the way I am today. <laughs> I was like that when I was a kid. Um, I would say, um, I think back then I gave in very easily. Like if someone said like, um, like no has you shouldn't really do that I'd be like okay I won't do it um, I would always compromise I think that's what and I think if I was to go back I'll tell myself don't compromise if you want to if you want to be the astronaut put your foot down and be the astronaut if you want to make this movie or something just go make it like in college I wanted to join a film club and it was very hard to join the film club because you know back then it was for the arts only and I was in computer science and design so we were considered as not arts and it, yeah, there's so much politics. I felt like, you know, if I was talking foot down, I say, listen, here's a script. I'm going to make this movie. You need to make this movie with me. Give me the camera. I think I would have made a, made a movie. So yeah, I think I'll go back and say, just, you know, just do don't it. be so much of a pussy back then. Just, just, get yeah. on, just put your foot down. And do get it, it yeah. done. Exactly. <laughs> take, take your, take your own advice for sure. Yeah. I love that. Brilliant. <laughs> and what would you change about this lovely industry of ours, the visual effects animation game? What would you change? Wow. Um, if I had the opportunity to change something, I think it would be to help train, I'm probably get shot for this now, but probably help train management to have a little bit of artistic empathy. I've worked, uh, and I'm not going to name companies, but I've worked with several companies, you know, um, most of them are not on that LinkedIn as well. Um, but I've worked with a lot of big various studios all over the world. And the thing that I found was that level of management versus artists. And the fact that when an artist says, I, I literally can't do what you bidded two days to do. And the management was like, well, you got to do it because we bidded it now. We told the client. And I really wish that there was a way, there was a bit of training or something for producers. Because I speak to a lot of BFX producers, being one myself, but speaking to a lot of BFX producers, they like, tell me, you know what? If I knew what really went on in an artist's approach to doing stuff or the work that's taken to get the shot done like not from a technical point of view but from a steps point of view and also how it's affecting people i will probably rethink the way i budget stuff I'll, I'll rethink the approach i i take when managing the team and i think artistic empathy is a big thing and we're seeing a lot of it now you know and some of the, most studios have that today but i still think like you know the subject of mental health 
the subject of like you know people that are suffering from anxiety you know i i feel like we we need to amplify that more in this industry because no we're not about we're not we're not trying to be the nhs and try to cure things because it's not about curing or anything it's about understanding an artist and trying to get the best out of the artist you know like if someone's got anxiety then find a way of embracing um their talent as opposed to like oh well you know he's he's a bit tetchy let's just not hire him and you could be missing out on like great talent so i think artistic yeah. empathy i wish we had more of that that's a great that's a great answer i know i'm, I'm pretty sure i'm gonna get phone calls a... every manager say dude seriously i can't believe you said that what are you saying <laughs> well i'll back you up on that because i probably get shocked saying this is that i think typically is the the production the dna of a producer is to be get the work out the door meet the deadline and it's quite fast-paced and you have to be quite extroverted and you're quite very confident and almost alpha in a way and then your typical artist tends to be very in- insular and quite introverted and on the box so you've got these two personality types that i feel potentially clash and there needs to be some emotional intelligence on on both sides i think for sure emotional intelligence but yeah i might get the word. if this was uh, the 80s i'd be getting letters oh no and doubt maybe i get, might get a few stern emails instead who knows um well, let's go in then with the, the last two questions then has, uh, if, if Tom, if you're listening to the edit, put a drum roll in for the last two. I've been dying for a drum roll. We've got the applause and the, the, the bolt. Let's get a drum roll in for this one. What thing can we do as a step towards a more inclusive and diverse industry? Um, obviously, you know, we need to have as many voices as possible to work on projects because that each diverse voice helps drive a project. But I'm going to say something a little bit controversial now, and I'm going to say that because being an executive producer on shows, I've seen this happen. And that is, if we want to have, if we want to champion diversity and inclusion, which we should 100% do, by the way, um, let's do it right. And what I mean from right, let's not do it like, oh, we have six episodes for a show. We're going to hire a male for these three, and we're going to hire a a black female or, or, or a diverse cultured female to direct this episode and whoever's out there, just get them on that because we hit that quota. It's insulting to that person that's been hired because you want to be hired for your talent. You don't want to be hired because you check the box of being a female or you check the box of being not white. Right. And I feel like there's a lot of that going around. There is a lot. And people listening to probably thinking, yeah. And executives thinking, oh, God, I hope that's not me. We all do it instinctively because we have to check a box. It's a government requirement in some projects. It's a funding requirement. If you're asking for government funding, usually grants and stuff on the BFI and so on require that, which is amazing. It's am- We should. But let's do it right, guys. Take the time. There are, there are artists of all genders, all cultures out there, whether it's he she they whatever they they're out there take the time like you would to find a top talented male or female artist take the time to find those even disability art artists with disabilities disabilities come in all kinds of ranges it's not just someone in a wheelchair it could be someone with a stigma stigmatism in their eye or it could be someone with with a with a bone condition what whatever the condition is it's a disability and we should acknowledge that as disability but most importantly when we're hiring that that person Let's not say we're hiring you because, oh, you're, you're the perfect female director for this, or you're the perfect disabled compositor for this. Oh, my God, we got wheelchair ramp access just for you, man. Thank you. Imagine what they're going to feel like. They, they want to get the job as an artist. So I feel like that's what we should be doing. Let's 
let's really take the time to really do it right. Because the talent's out there, right? The, the pool is there. It's uh, it's the headhunting mentality, isn't it? You know, it's not just posting something on LinkedIn and hoping for the best because not everyone's on LinkedIn, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going in for the final question. Um, it's a big one. It's the golden nugget of advice for anyone trying to get into the industry has. What have you got for our loyal listeners, our fan base? Cool. I get asked this a lot. And it really doesn't matter what you do. So I think the big one that I get asked a lot is, here's the thing. Let, let's focus on the thing that's that's in the industry at the moment, right? Which is Unreal Engine or Game Engine, right? This is not bias, this Unity as well. Um, game Engines. Everyone wants to get into Game Engines, right? And the question I get asked all the time is, how do I get in the industry or how do I diversify my skill set to, to use Game Engines? Like, where do I start? And it's a really simple answer download the friggin' tool for free and, and <laughs> yeah, learn it. Like, yeah, but what do I learn? There's so many tutorials. It's overwhelming. And they're 100% right. It's extremely overwhelming. If you think about it, Simon, like 20 years ago, there wasn't like tutorials available for all these tools you have today, right? Today, you just go on. I, I, YouTube is my, is my go-to place for figuring stuff out. But here's the thing. Here's an advice I would give anyone that's trying to learn, say Unreal Engine, right? Because I'm using Unreal at the moment. Ask yourself, what do you want to do in the tool set? Forget about learning how to use the tool set. No one knows Maya, Houdini, New, Unreal Engine, whatever tool. No one knows it inside out 100%. Hell, not even the engineers that build the thing knows it inside out every single thing. Okay, that's a fact. So ask yourself, what do you want to do? So I'll give you an example for me. I'm a director. So I want to use Unreal Engine from a director's point of view. So what are the things I need to learn? Obviously, how to install and load up the software is a given. But what do I want to do? What do I want to learn once I'm in there? Well, first off, I want to know how to bring an asset into the scene. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two, how do I bring a camera and move it? Lesson number three, how do I render what I've done as a quick time so I can just put it in an edit? I did all that in a weekend. And believe me, once you, you've done those three or four steps, you have results. It makes your learning way more interesting. It may it becomes more rewarding. Now imagine I didn't do that. I sat down. I'm gonna I'm gonna learn the entire Unreal Engine tutorial on on the website. I'm gonna go for it, and it becomes very frustrating. I'm not getting the results. I'm just seeing a frigging cube on the screen. It's crashing. It becomes demoralizing. I just give up. I'm not gonna touch this. I'm gonna go back to what, using new right. So that and now if you are an animator, right? How do I learn Unreal? Well, similar to approach I took. How do I bring a character in there? How do I bring a rig in there? How do I just keyframe a couple of moves? And how do I render that out? Oh my God, you have a result of someone just doing this. It's okay, it's just doing this, the hand movement. But how do I take it further now? How do I bring motion capture data in there? How do I adjust the head on top of the motion capture for additive? These are lessons that you, you've just created your own curriculum. Now a production designer, an audio designer may have a complete different set of questions, but set up three or four questions and you will learn the tool and you will love it and you will embrace it and make your job better that is a brilliant place to to leave it has fantastic really specific advice about learning and real and it's out there right it's like a lot of platforms and, and, and softwares like they're out there available if you've got something to work on 
um it's uh yeah it's it's there for the taking isn't it so i think that's, uh, exactly. that's brilliant there's so much i, I want to continue talking about uh has but we're just out of time we we could we could we could make this like the the godfather trilogy of uh podcast episodes uh and go full epic but we'll do, we'll do a netflix no and just cut it in half way. cut the season in half right it's a part two exactly <laughs> we do like we could stop it go out stop there right join us in another two weeks and we'll get we'll go deep but I, i'm sure it's not the last we'll we'll hear from you on on, on the podcast has i think that's uh that's an incredible amount and you've you've through the vault questions you've you've answered <laughs> my big question which was the transition piece around a vfx artist to essentially a film director so before we uh, we wrap up we're going to close the the, the the vault doors and, and lock them until next time um but has is there any anything you want to plug? Anything you want to? I mean, clearly Rift is in post, right? <laughs> so what's the plan for Rift? Yeah, how, can, um, how do people get to see it? I'm I'm really open. I mean, at the moment the film is in post production, but what we've done with the movie is we've taken a video game marketing approach, which is open access. So if you follow me on like on my social media, my Instagram, which is like has dazzle. Don't ask how I got that name. That's another podcast. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you can find me on Facebook, LinkedIn. I post a lot and I post a lot of behind the scenes because it's kind of like, I love the mm-hmm. idea of like, you know, showing people under the hood how this is made. I'm very open. So if you, know, you, you, you drop questions in the comments, I tend to answer them very quickly. Um, but definitely, you know, the movie is in post where we're going through the distribution stage at the moment. So whether it's on a major streamer, whether it's on AVOD or SVOD, different streaming, that's the other part of making movies is getting it distributed. But the game demo will be available on Steam for free to download sort of like mid-June. So we're finishing it okay. sort of like in a few weeks' time for publishers, people like Xbox and PlayStation to play and give us feedback on. And then what we're going to do, we're going to open up the demo of what you call early access to everyone to play the game. And um, and there's a running joke internally, by the way, like what's going to come out first, the game or the movie? Yeah, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. And how's it going to work with the storytelling piece, right? You know, how are you going to introduce the characters depending on... You'll have to play the game, you'll see. I'm playing the game. I mean, just purely because it looks gloriously violent, like I said earlier, (laughs) and I'm down for anything that's gloriously violent. So, um, yeah, I'm sold. You had me at hello. Thank you. Has absolute pleasure. Thank you for making the time. You must be absolutely knackered after uh, FMX last week. So to have uh, turned around the podcast so quickly um, is, is hugely appreciated. And I'm sure our listeners share, share my, my gratitude. So has I wish you uh, all the best and I hopefully bump into you in the flesh soon. Thank you, Simon. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, that was episode 18 of the Access VFX podcast. We packed a lot into that chat, didn't we? What an absolute privilege I had to have 90 minutes of uninterrupted conversation with a talent like has. Wow, our conversation on inspiration being more than just a fuzzy feeling and rather an opportunity to follow up, connect and collaborate mind blown. Do check out hasamation.com for more on the awesome looking Rift project and connect with Has on the socials at HasDazzle. Before you go, a couple of things. Please go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, subscribe and leave us a review if you fancy it. And most importantly, please get involved with our Foundry-sponsored global e-mentoring program. If you are in the UK, USA, Canada, Australia or New Zealand, you can sign up for free to get an industry mentor or become a mentor yourself to folks aspiring or just getting started in VFX animation and games. You heard me right, it's free to sign up please go to www.accessvfx.org forward slash mentors and go and literally change someone's life. 
Thank you, Haz, for being a fabulous guest. Thanks to Tom Box for producing it and for the graphics. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Come join me next week where we speak to another inspiring member of the visual effects, animation and games community. Take care. Thank you.